Welcome to Just the Right Book. I'm Roxanne Cody. We are joined today on Just the Right Book by Colin Toybean, whose breadth of accomplishment is staggering for such a young man. He was born in Wexford, Ireland. He has been shortlisted for the Whitbread First Novel Award. His books, Blackwater, Lightship, The Master, Brooklyn, have won the Dublin Impact Awards, been shortlisted for the Booker Prize of Novel of the Year. His book, Testament of Mary, which is extraordinary, all his books are extraordinary, was also shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, the Testament of Mary, opened on Broadway with uh, Fiona Shaw. It just goes on and on. He teaches, he writes, he, there isn't anything that this man doesn't know or do. And after my interview with Colm, stay tuned to hear what's on the front table at the famous, deservedly famous Powell's Books in Portland, Oregon. But first, my interview with Colm. He's known for his use of incredibly beautiful spare prose. It's been described as artful restraint. And he often gives mythic grace to ordinary women's lives. But with his new book, House of Names, he humanizes the mythic. He recreates the ancient tale of the House of Atreus encompassing King Agamemnon, Clytemnestra, Electra, and Orestes, the unfolding of the tragedies begins just before the Greek forces set sail for the Trojan War. Their fleet is becalmed, and the goddess Artemis demands a human sacrifice from Agamemnon in return for fair winds. That human sacrifice is his daughter, Iphigenia, and so it begins. Colm, why at this moment did you take this sharp turn to recreate this Greek tragedy from the previous run of your books? I was reading one of the new translations um, of the Oresteia of the work by Aeschylus when I, in the introduction, I came across the title of a play called Iphigenia in Aulis. And I came across it a number of times, and I realized that I'd never read it and didn't know what it was. And it's a late play, and it's by Euripides. And it really tells the story of what happened, not from the point of view of the king Agamemnon, or from Electra, whose point of view we often see in, in single plays, including a play by Euripides, Sophocles, and indeed Aeschylus, but um, from the point of view of the mother, Clytemnestra, of the one who has been fooled, who has been lured to the camp with her daughter, thinking her daughter was going to a wedding, was going to be married to the warrior Achilles, and instead her daughter was to be sacrificed. And, uh, I mean, she feels really humiliated by her husband, and she also sees in her husband a sort of weakness, that he really knows he shouldn't do this, that he should actually ignore whatever the oracle has said, and that he should actually leave his daughter alone. But she loses. I mean, she does everything to stop her daughter being sacrificed, and she loses. And in that time, she makes the decision that when he comes home, if he comes home victorious from the wars, that she would in turn murder him. Once I saw the story from another perspective, it sort of gave me energy. I could see, oh my God, look at this. And I just simply started to work. I, I realized that I could give her a voice, that I could do that. And then the other figure that interested me was the figure of her son, Orestes, who eventually murders her. But she doesn't know he's going to murder her. He's the youngest of the family. He's the sort of, in my version, he's not heroic. He, you know, he's, he's a little boy who's bewildered. And he becomes a young man with no strategy, really, easily led. In no text does it tell you, in none of the Greek texts, where he was when he was away. He's clearly away somewhere. His sister, uh, Electra, is waiting for him to return. But from where? And I think for a novelist, that idea that something you don't know, that's not known, that's not actually been already plotted out, becomes very interesting indeed. And so really without knowing, I mean, I, I wrote some of the first section, and then I thought, oh, well, I'll finish this, but I don't know what it is, really. But then once I thought of the um, arrest days, I realized that I had a book, but I hadn't been planning. I mean, it wasn't something I've always wanted to do or anything. I, I have seen the place performed, and really in, in, in the case of Electra, I thought I knew the story too well to be able to start and do anything else with it. But I suddenly found myself halfway through a book 
that really I hadn't planned. A column, one of the things that was striking to me in reading about arrest days, so his journey, which began as a kidnapping and then an escape, and then with two of the other boys that he had escaped with, ends up in this sort of idyllic, Homer-like odyssey in a trip there and then a trip back home. And I was struck by just the way you were describing him. He seemed uh, somewhat meek, a bit of a follower. Leander, who was uh, one of his companions on the escape, clearly took a leadership role that only grows over time. And then Orestes manages to become so enveloped by his family's cycle of violence that he kills his own mother. What was the message you were hoping to impart about this journey, this kind of mental journey of Orestes from a meek follower to someone capable of killing his mother? Well, the first thing I wanted to do, as you say, was create, uh, when he escapes from having been kidnapped with two other boys, they spend some years being protected and looked after, and in, and in turn protecting an old woman in, in a space, you know, that's almost magical, the sea on three mm. sides with sort of plenty of food, as though it's a space out of time, all far away from the wars, far away from the cruelty. I just wanted that as a sort of golden time that he would always, in a way, want back, that he could thrive in that very domestic atmosphere. But eventually the boys have to leave. The old woman dies and one of their friends dies. So the two of them go back home. And, of course, the going back home for Orestes is particularly difficult because I wanted to build up an idea that, that he was someone who would murder his mother. He's not a psychopath, but he is someone who, you know, could be very easily influenced. He seems to be almost an adolescent He's all the more dangerous for the fact that he doesn't have a plan or a strategy. He isn't going to lead people anywhere. His friend, Leander, as you say, leads him. And then his sister, um, Electra, mm. begins to lead him. And someone like that is often much more dangerous. I mean, I noticed, for example, when I was reporting from Northern Ireland, that you would discover that the person who'd actually done most harm was not the leader, was not the person you were seeing on TV or whose name was being in the paper, but someone in the shadows who just simply was ready, prepared to do anything and then go back into the shadows. So that, so that I, was, I wanted to make a character like that who is in a way a lethal weapon, who's the most dangerous one of all, that's because he doesn't really have the plan, have the strategy. So, in other words, his mother is so powerful in such a rage. His sister is so powerful. And he, in the way, is the one in between them that he just lives, he lives in a world of his own. I think everyone, everyone of us knows somebody like that, who's often the younger son of a family who really doesn't do well at exams. And, but nobody minds him. It isn't as though he's considered dangerous, but actually... You know, you know, you, you don't know what he's thinking about in his own dreams. You know, it's interesting that you say this. It hadn't occurred to me as I was reading the book, but to attach it to contemporary times where we've seen some of these horrific crimes being committed, and they tend to be, or they are often committed by people who feel isolated and left out and overlooked. And I hadn't thought to compare that to the way in which Orestes is depicted in the book. I mean, I mean, I mean historically, he's, he's, he's depicted as decisive and heroic. But what I was interested in was looking, some, I mean, sometimes when we look at somebody who has committed, you know, as say a terrorist, one of the most atrocious crimes, you see somebody who's young, in the photograph, just looks like somebody really nice. And you realize that it's out of his isolation he's working. It's out of his marginalization he's working, rather than out of a sense of power. Power. And that um, that the, the most dangerous one isn't, the, isn't the, the sort of one who's strutting along the street, looking mm. as though he's going to do something. It's the other one moving slowly, you wouldn't notice. You think, oh, he looks like a nice guy, and he's the one who has planted the bomb. Well, and you know, in, in the same vein, 
one of the one of the other elements of the book that was striking to me was the role of the character of Electra, because having seen the plays, I think of Electra only in a state of rage, actually. And here we see her emerge to a woman of power, but again, she is not as pretty as her sister was. She is overlooked by her mother, sort of kept isolated. Was was it your intention to create this different image of Electra for somewhat of the same reason? Yes, I wanted to bring her down a notch to make her yeah. isolated in the palace while her mother is doing all the planning and all the manipulating. She, in a way, is, is seeing the ghost of her father, the ghost of her sister. She's almost like Ophelia if, if, if Orestes mm-hmm. is Hamlet. But, that, um, but then she begins to plan and plot. She's much colder in my version. Instead of being in, a, in a, just a rage outside the palace shouting. It's quiet her, fury. You know, she's in her room, and she slowly starts to see how she can get power. And one mm-hmm. of the ways is to manipulate her brother. The other is to get rid of her mother. And then she's somebody who really does have a sort of strategy that, that, that she weaves, that, 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 you know, she creates a web. She knows everything that's going on. She misses nothing. She understands how the night in the palace works. She understands who to trust and who not to trust, which her brother doesn't know. And indeed, her mother in the end doesn't know. So she, so she, she actually in the end prevails, but not because she's been outside the palace, as in the plays, as in the theater, outside the palace in some sort of mindless state of grief and rage. Actually, she's quite manipulative, quite considered, quite serious, and quite solitary as well. Like her mother, Colin, right? She becomes her mother. Mm. In other words, that Orestes notices once Clytemestra is dead, once his mother is dead, that his sister is actually beginning to speak like his mother and almost look like his mother. And he's fascinated by that idea, but he doesn't understand how this has happened. She's moved into that position of power. Colm, so when you read, you know, the Greek tragedies and myths, you are, of course, always presented with the controls and manipulations of the gods. And here in your book, the gods uh, take a, a step back and you even at the uh, end of the book, Leander is speaking, and they're talking about her mother having been killed, and Orestes says, I killed her, you killed your mother, yes. Who said that you could, Leander asked. He did not wait for a reply, but began to shout the question, repeating it several times until Electra defiantly replied, I said that he could, the gods said that he could. And Leander then shouts, the gods have nothing to do with us, nothing. We will get nothing more from them. Their time is over. Tell us a little bit about your intention with that dialogue. Well, there are a few things I'm working with. One is I'm working with Wagner. I'm working with The Ring, The Twilight of the Gods, where he dramatizes over those operas the idea that the power of the gods is fading. And I thought that was a very interesting idea but the second one, the main one, really, is that it's very difficult to put the gods into a novel. That We notice that, for example, even though Jane Austen has plenty of clergymen, she doesn't actually have a moment where, you know, the gods don't tell Mr. Darcy what to do, or it isn't the gods that make Lady Catherine de Bourgh or Elizabeth decide what their actions should be. The novel, in general, is a secular space. It's filled with choices and chances that are all human, people confronting their destiny. And I realized that if I didn't do that, and I do it quite early in the book where Clytemestra mm. says she does not believe that the gods can control what she's doing or that she needs to appeal to the gods. I do it quite early because I need to get it over with so that you can watch these characters making their own decisions. So to that extent, it's a contemporary novel. I mean, obviously I've set it in ancient Greece, but it's not filled with a set of beliefs that belong to them, 
but a set of beliefs that belong to us. You know, I did feel like you bookended uh, the novel with a lot of clarity around the gods taking a diminished role in the lives. But then the book made me think continuously about the role of fate versus the role of free will, sort of another kind of God replacing the control of their behavior. Yes, I suppose what I'm doing is I'm, I'm sort of setting the idea of myth, the, the idea that this is a story that will, will unfold in this way mm. against the moment-by-moment way in which somebody responds to experience, which I think is willful so that I'm working the two things against each other. I mean, what's interesting is how much Shakespeare took from this story. Right. That when Orestes returns from being away, he's a young man, suddenly bewildered in a palace, whose father has been murdered and his mother has taken a lover. So I'm sort of interested in the way that the story has been, you know, already used. And of course, in Hamlet, it, it, it's, it's filled with decision and indecision. And Hamlet seems a very sort of modern figure as he sort of, he's so playful and so intelligent. But on the other side, his, his father appears to him as a ghost, and he seems to fully believe in that idea of the ghost. So he's caught between two worlds. So I was interested in what I could do with that. You know, one of the things that was just so pleasurable, I was particularly struck by here, in the paragraphs or chapters where Electra is accompanied by the ghost of her father or the ghost of her sister, or at the end when Clytemestra is a ghost in the palace, it is some of the most evocative, beautiful, ethereal language I think I've ever read. It's just, you know, I, I just read it over and over again. And one of the things is I, I read the book, but I also listened on audiobooks. So the audiobook is read by Juliet Stevenson, Charlie Anson, and Pippa Nixon. It is like enjoying a play. I mean, the reading of it was so beautiful. Did you have any part in picking out who would read it or any oversight in that? Because it's quite magnificent. Well, well. I was overjoyed when I heard that Juliet was going to do it. Um, and, you know, she's a classically trained actress and that she would sort of know in a way how to, how to build it up, how much emotion to give at certain points. But that section you're talking about, I wrote that in a day. Oh, and, it was um, extraordinary. And I was in a sort of trance. I, I, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do at that point. And once it occurred to me, I just wrote that down and... I realized in a, way, in a way I've been building up, that is what we've been building up to. That idea mm. of Clytemestra as shade, as somebody whose power has been diminished, who's dead, who's speaking from the dead, speaking in a very particular tone. What, 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 what I'm trying to do there is use very few words. The vocabulary I can choose from there is very, very small. So she's very limited in how she can speak. And, and in, in that way of limiting her, it is as though I have brought the... Um, novel down to piano music or cello music. Mm-hmm. So it's as though an, an, an orchestra has been playing and suddenly a single cello starts to play against the orchestra. Or after What a beautiful analogy, Colin. Or indeed that I'm working with a single pencil, that I'm making a drawing. Mm. Having made a painting, I move into making a drawing. And somehow or other, if you do that, I mean, you can't do it for the whole book because the book won't hold it. But if you do it at a certain point, you can get a power by, oddly enough, by using minimalism um, in, the, in the tone you're using. You can get a sense of somebody who's operating from the other side, who's speaking from the other side. You know, it was that chapter to me, that, which I read three times, it was that chapter that most connected for me to your other books. I like the analogy. Here you have an orchestra playing most of the time. And the exceptions are when Areste and his two companions are living with the old woman on a coast in this idyllic place. And then at the end, when Clytemestra is a ghost, those two pieces connect so much when I think of your language in Brooklyn, for instance, which is powerful by using what you would say a single instrument. I would connect Alish in Brooklyn to Arrestes. In other words, that exactly. 
that she's somebody who really isn't in charge of her own life, who people tell her what to do and she does it. And um, I think the style of that arrest section, as you say, is much closer to the style of Brooklyn, whereas the style, say, of the first section or the Electra section is closer to the Testament of Mary. Mm. And is that sort of idea that out of powerlessness comes a sort of power in voice, that, that if you repress somebody and then they finally speak, they will speak in a sort of heightened tone. Colin, that reminds me of a, of a different sort of a question. What part of the writing process brings you joy? I mean, I've heard you talk about <laughs> the challenge, if not pain, of writing, but which part of the process brings you joy? Is it the conceiving of the idea? Is it the writing of it? Is it the finishing of it? Is it watching it go out into the world? What what part of that is your moment where you have a sense of satisfaction? I, I suppose the sense of satisfaction is in finishing it, is in being able to say, this is no longer mine, it belongs to the reader. Because the work itself, as you do it, is actually quite difficult in that you're trying to imagine things that, in, in, the, in this case, are often violent, are filled with grief and pain, and you can't write it unless you feel it. So you're putting mm. yourself through quite an ordeal. It, it, it's quite an odd business because you really need to concentrate. <laughs> and so I wouldn't, you know, overdo the joy part, and I wouldn't overdo the satisfaction part. But, um, Colin, I'd be really sad if someone of your um, accomplishment and skill isn't isn't finding joy somewhere in giving this gift <laughs> Look, to I all know of us. What joy is joy is winning a tennis game. Joy is is finally getting the wave in the ocean just to go back for it long enough that you can actually swim or dive under it. Mm. Joy is, you know, I mean, I know what joy is, and certainly writing a book is not joy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think we ought to work on this. I feel sad that what all of us get to enjoy so much is so is at, is the opposite for you. Yeah, I mean, Joy is looking at a menu and thinking, oh, my God, I'd love to eat that. and thinking that you, I can. <laughs> Colin, what's the book that changed your life? I read Hemingway when I was about 16. I was really fascinated by the way in which he could evoke pleasure and joy, indeed, of those characters in The Sun Also Rises going to Spain and how much fun they seem to have and, uh, you know, all that all that business of sex and drinking and yeah. carrying on. And, I, and I just, is that what drove you to go live in Barcelona briefly? Yeah, well, that was one of the things. And then when I read Portrait of a Lady and uh, I thought I was reading a novel about style, about someone who was trying to learn a new style and realized in the book that it's a novel about morality, about treachery, about very dark things indeed. And... Uh, I really became fascinated by Isabel Archer and what James had done. So I suppose those two American books would have really been, you know, very important. Also the poems of Yeats and a, and a lot of, you know, Irish poetry. Yeah, I always feel like your books have poetry at their base. There's a poetic quality I always find to your writing. Do you see? Do you see that? Yeah, I'm a sort of failed poet. You know, I, I started off in my teenage years. A failed as a poet. poet. <laughs> no, really, and the poems didn't really work out, and I had to move into prose, which, um, in my view, is a sort of lesser art. So I'm stuck with it now. But yes, I, I mean, I do read a lot of poetry, and I think a lot about poetry, and I have a sense always uh, that I'm working with the rhythm of the sentence right. as much as I am with sort of what information the sentence gives. I think as a reader, you feel that there is, there's a poetic or musicality to your writing that I think, even though there's an extraordinary amount of violence in the book and obviously tragedy, it has that same kind of um, rhythm. You know, it's funny that you use the word joy as the wave um Retreats because there's something to me when I start reading your books that feel like the buoyancy of water. Oh, I hadn't thought of that, but um, certainly I love swimming and yeah, I love being in the ocean. So, what are you working on next? Are you, so, you you are you going to take another sharp turn and surprise us? Um, I don't know. There's a book of stories that is almost finished, but I recently I read two of them and realized they need more work. So that's nice because, I've, in a way, I've done the basic work of, you know, 
working out the characters, but I just need to make them a bit longer. And there is another novel um, set in both contemporary Germany and contemporary New York, which has a male protagonist. But again, that needs more work. So I'm in that lovely state where I just need to do more work. So do you, Colm, do you work on um, several writing projects at the same time as opposed to begin and end one? Yes. That, I mean, for example, with Nora Webster, I had that on the go for about 13 years. And I interrupted it to write Brooklyn and The Testament of Mary. Well, so, quite an interruption. <laughs> you know, I can actually just stop a book, leave it there, think about it a lot, come back to it and take it up as though I hadn't, I hadn't stopped at all. Well, Colm, I, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time uh, to join us. Colm Toybin has joined us uh, to talk about writing uh, in general, but in particular about his new book called House of Names. Uh, this book has been described as captivating, terrifying, brilliant. It makes myths plausible and adds to just the sheer joy column of reading any sentence, any book, any play, any short story, any essay uh, that you want to share with us. So thank you for joining us on Just the Right Book. Well, thank you very much, Roxana. It was, a, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks again to Column Toybean. It's now time to hear what's on the front table at Pals Books in Portland, Oregon. I have to say one thing before we start. I really love you, Roxana. you. <laughs> We are joined today on Just the Right Book by Miriam Sons, who's the CEO of Powell's Books in Portland, Oregon. Powell's is the mecca of bookstores. They've been in Portland since 1971. They employ over 500 people. They sell 4 million books. It is the most extraordinary store to wander through. I have a bookstore and I go in there and I could spend thousands of dollars because of the way it invites uh, discovery. They started their online uh, book sales. They sell used books. I think they probably have one of the largest used book inventories. They're just a brilliant bookstore. And Miriam Sants is not only one of my closest friends, one of the smartest people in the industry of bookselling that's managed to benefit everyone in her path. So, Miriam, welcome to Just the Right Book. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Roxanne, and it's always fun to talk to you, so I'm looking forward to hearing about what you're reading. Well, Miriam, here's my question to start with. Uh, Since you've had a decades-long career in bookselling, but you must have started as a bookseller, how did... what? What drew you to be a bookseller in the first place? I first got interested in bookselling in the early 1970s when I was a member of a Portland feminist collective that opened up the first books, feminist bookstore in Portland called A Woman's Place. It is not in any way related to the current feminist bookstore, but it was the, the grandmother of that store. And so there I was uh, uh, volunteering and having a blast selling books uh, from publishers that no one had ever heard of and authors that we now take for granted that um, were not being stocked or sold at mainstream bookstores. So I got turned on to the power of uh, the transformative power of book selling uh, in the early 1970s. And then when did you go to work for Powell's? I didn't start working for Powell's until 1984. I spent the subsequent uh, years between those two dates working at B. Dalton, which was the precursor that Barnes & Noble bought a decade ago. And then I worked at a local book company called the J.K. Gill Company for seven and a half years. So I got some training in other uh, industry models for book selling, and then I uh, got laid off from J.K. Gill and was looking around Portland and decided to um, take a job at Powell's Books, and I've been here for 34 years. So, Miriam, when you went to Powell's, but Powell's now is a 75,000-square-foot, square-block bookstore, one of the right. lead tourist attractions in Portland, Oregon. How big was the Burnside Avenue store when you went there? 
Well, we were about uh, 20,000 retail square feet, and I was employee number 47. Wow. And so we're now 75,000, and we have about 500 employees. So uh, there's been massive change. The massive change not only occurred at this store, but we have other stores in the Portland area. We have a store in Beaverton, which is a suburb of Portland. It's 35,000 retail square feet, which is also bigger than most uh, independent bookstores. And then we have a lovely neighborhood bookstore on the Hawthorne area. It's about 20,000 square feet, and we have a a home and garden store on Hawthorne Avenue, and we have an outlet at the Portland Airport. So we've expanded greatly over the last 35 years. Honey Pie, you're a force of nature in book selling. <laughs> I mean, think about it, really. How? I mean, we've talked over the years as, as you've built and opened these stores or expanded Burnside Avenue, and here it is. You know, one of the things that Michael Powell said that was uh, sort of transformative for us was, one of my favorite quotes was, never underestimate the intelligence of your customer. Mm. And uh, we've built our model on that. If there were more books, we knew we could have uh, more people purchasing them. We have never underestimated the intelligence of folks in Portland or their desire to have unusual, different, uh, wide assortment of books. And at some point, we realized that um, the more books we had, the more excitement it generated. Yeah, it's it's. It is for anybody uh, listening who has never been to Pals. It's a place you you need to put on your bucket list to go visit. And if you can't get there in the short run, Pals.com ought to be the bookstore site that you go to. They've got an incredible array of used and out of print books. It's just 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 bookmark Pals.com. Um, yes. for anything that you need. Right, Miriam? I'm glad you said that because I was trying to figure out how to get <laughs> Don't it. worry. Don't worry. I got You're it. You're very good at this. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we think that um, Pauls.com should be a great alternative, and every book that we have in our inventory is on our website. So uh, you certainly get to see the wide assortment we have. The thing I tell people who ask me, you know, uh, try to explain our bookstore is you really can't explain it. You've got to come and feel exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> because until you've walked through these doors and been surrounded by, we have almost a million books in this building. I know. And at any one time, there can be three or 400 people perusing those books. And to be surrounded by that community of interested readers and all these books, it's just a kick. Yeah, it's, it's very cool. So speaking of your store, mm-hmm. uh, we call this segment, What's on Your Front Table? And the idea of the conversation with uh, some of the most prominent booksellers around the country is... We as booksellers make a decision of what to put on the front table. We do it based on what's on the bestseller list, what we think has a great jacket, what we think is important for people to know about, and most importantly, books that we love. And we're not guided by advertising money or anything else but our own quirky, sometimes smart judgment. So we started this segment to hear what the best bookstores are putting on their front table and why. So, Miriam, you have a lot of front tables. What are on your front tables? Well, this was one of the hardest questions <laughs> I knew you were going to ask because, yes, that is true. We have a lot of front tables, and uh, each of our front tables carries about you know 50 to 75 different titles. Our smallest table carries maybe 25 titles. And um, one of the things we try to do is try to appeal to all sorts of different people. We don't have a image in our minds of the Powell customer being a very narrow definition. We think that they're going to be interested in a wide assortment of things. So I picked out one book that I'm maybe you've heard of, but it was one of my favorite novels from last year called News of the World by Paulette mm. Giles. Yeah. Did uh, you Lori, read that one? I haven't read it. Lori at the bookstore did and like couldn't stop talking about it. Exactly. It is the story of this itinerant newsreader. It's post-Civil War, and he went from small town to small town in Texas, literally reading the newspaper as a way of uh, getting news out to the world. And he gets uh, hired to take a, a young captive uh, that has been abducted from their family and uh, spent about 10 years with the Native Americans to, and take her back to her family of origin. And it's a 400-mile trek through uh, what is uh, the new state of Texas to her home. And it's this wonderful story about this 
old itinerant newsreader and this 12-year-old girl going back, and she doesn't speak English at the beginning. Uh, she's forgotten her native language. It is a beautiful story of this unorthodox friendship and this time in our history that I knew very little about. And what did it make you think about the dissemination of news? I mean, because that's a almost ancient time way of disseminating information, right? Going back to storytellers going around. Exactly. I mean, it certainly highlighted the fact that we are inundated with news versus what life was like when news was an event. Literally, he would walk into town and ride into town and uh, he would post signs saying, come Saturday night and hear the news. And uh, people would sit around and he would choose what news to tell people. So not only is it, you know, uh, sort of a narrow pipeline to get to these small towns, but he was thinking about what would make people's lives better, more interesting, Mm. what would inspire them. And so he was selecting, and it was a fascinating sort of cultural thing to think about. Oh, my goodness, here's somebody who is um, preparing the news for these small-town people. The other thing that was fascinating about the book, which was this idea of culture, and um, who belongs where, and how are we, nature or nurture? Here was this young girl who was abducted from her family of origin when she was very little, a year or two years old. And, you know, and now uh, the um, Native Americans are sending her back, and she doesn't belong. She doesn't belong in Mm. uh, the Native American culture, and she certainly doesn't feel like she belongs in the white person's culture. And it's the story of displacement and trying to find connection. And so I thought it was a very, uh, in its own way, contemporary story of somebody a little bit loose in the ether trying to find connection. So speaking of loose in the ether trying to find connection, one of the books I have loved over the last six months is Exit West. Have you read that yet? No. I'm writing so it down now. It, it is a book by, I always get his name wrong, Moshid Hamid. Mm-hmm. He wrote um, Rational Fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he is, uh, the story is a little bit of magic realism. It starts in a civil uprising city in the Middle East and you know, feels like it could be Iran or Pakistan. And it tells the story of immigration through a couple that fall in love in the city under siege and the decision and the process of the decision of they make to leave. Now, the magic realism is when they decide to emigrate, you do it through a door. Mm -hmm. But what it sets up is a series of issues around immigration or exactly the issue you brought up um, about belonging. Because in this book, there are um, exterior cities and interior cities. The interior city, whether when they're in London, when they're in San Francisco, is the natives and the perimeter city are the immigrants and the role that each have and whether they ought to interconnect and do they belong and do they share some sentiments with the natives or not is done so smartly. And then you also understand exactly, again, what you were talking about is They've pulled themselves away from their country, from their relatives, and they plop themselves down in these places. And how do you become rooted in this new place? And the third element is how each member of that couple do or don't adjust to these changes that occur during their series of movements in emigrating. So I think that's a great segue for the next, uh, another book on our front table, because we're talking about connections. And another one of my favorite books is this nonfiction book by Olivia Long called Lonely City. Are you familiar with that Mm, one? No, I'm not. This is so good, Mary. (laughs) We're each discovering. It's a memoir, and uh, she's broken up with a long-term relationship, and she's living in New York City, and she uses the work and lives of, you know, these four New York City artists, two of whom are pretty well-known, Edward Hopper and Andy Warhol, to talk Mm. about the different ways loneliness and the city define their work 
And you can certainly see it in Edward Hopper. It was a little bit more interesting for me to think about it with Andy Warhol. But it's this engaging way of looking at really empathetic study on urban loneliness, how we've created these cities Mm. that can often um, intensify our feeling of loneliness and otherness and disconnection. Yeah, and you know, Miriam, I wonder how that connects to these startling statistics you see of the increased levels of anxiety, particularly among young people. Yeah, well, there's something there about uh, uh, the impact of urbanization and, you know, I'm sure people will come up with many other uh, influences over the past few uh, decades, but I also think the rise of the Internet and how it has a feeling of connection with a great feeling of disconnection um, sort Mm. of entwined in it that we now know more and can learn more, but at the same time, it's a less personal and more uh, introspective. You do it on your own. You do it facing a screen. So I think there's... There's a lot of interesting work being done, and I would highly recommend Lonely City. Oh, I'm going to pick that up. Miriam, you know, listening to you talk about uh, the topic in the book prompts me to ask you, what have you seen as the difference in reading habits over, really even over the whole almost 40 years that you've been a bookseller? Do you think people's uh, desire to read or the kind of reading that they want to do has fundamentally changed? Well, you know, I think one of the things I have to watch out for is anecdotal information becoming um, uh, actual sort of reality-based information. And, you know, my anecdotal information um, often can be swayed by, you know, uh, simple trends like how are sales this summer or what's the big book and how many copies did I sell this year versus last year. But when I look at the numbers, and I do, I look at Publishers Weekly or Shelf Awareness, two industry magazines that talk a lot about, um, just recently I think Publishers Weekly came out with a 3% increase in the total number of books purchased over the last year, uh, a decline in the number of e-books. And it doesn't seem to have, those statistics don't seem to have penetrated the uh, the story storytelling that goes on in the media. And the the media story is reading is declining, people are spending more time on screens and less time reading. And I think that that is also true. Um, I know I spend way more time at home and in my office looking at a screen. Um, I still spend a fair amount of time uh, looking at print books. So when I look at the statistics, I have to be careful, I think, to not also let my personal curmudgeon, aging human body uh, get between uh, the statistics and um, my interpretation of them. And um, I'm very optimistic. Board books, this is a fascinating, you know, little statistic. Board books are uh, selling at a greater rate than ever before. And and board books, explain what board oh, books sorry. are. Board books are the hard cardboard books that you give to a toddler, and it's usually one or two words per page, and they're very thick pages. That's a board book, which means that more people are buying board books. And what I see statistically in our very small sample here is that it's the uh, zero to 12-year-old has just exploded as far Mm. as uh, reading. And what we see here on a Saturday or Sunday on a weekend or during vacations is our rooms, our kids' room is jam-packed with parents and children and kids reading on on parents' laps. And um, and statistically, PW is saying, yes, this is what's occurring. More of these kids are being led to reading print and bound books. And... um, I think that says something about what they will turn to when they're 15 or 30 or 45. Um, that's my hope. Well, uh, to reinforce that hope, one of the uh, booksellers I interviewed was the general manager at Skylight Books um, in the Silver Lakes region of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So that's a very young, hip yeah. neighborhood, a lot of single people, a lot of young families. That's the bulk of her um, sales and her customers, and they are booming. Right. So, it, you know, to your point, when you talk to a lot of people with a question I'm going to ask you in a minute about the book that changed their life, they often talk about a book that they read as a 10-year-old or a teenager that was the uh, seduction to them of understanding all the things that books could do for them. Absolutely. And I would 
second that uh, Skylight Bookstore story with our number two best-selling section is graphic novels. Mm. And, you know, graphic novels is another way that people are reading, but it's not in the traditional Charles Dickens kind of scenario, but they're reading. And um, to me, uh, they then le- it leads a lot of those people to fiction. It leads a lot of those people to science fiction and horror novels. And um, it's a growing, and I think Older people tend to discount that as reading. It's not real reading. And to me, all reading is real reading. I really love a number of graphic novels. Mm -hmm. So do I. You know, I think they're a very interesting other way of telling a story that in some way, you know, probably the first graphic novel many of us our age read was Mouse, uh, the Art Spiegelman um, graphic novel that came out about uh, the Holocaust. But, you know... Many of these are incredibly smart, provocative. I find them every bit as engaging as print. You know, you don't end up with the beautiful language that you might um, in a regular book, but I I find them just as fascinating. Well, it's an interesting um, conjunction between a visual and the printed word, and I think it's a fascinating melding of the two. And to me, it is taking a book and turning it into something more. It's sort of a cross product, and mm-hmm. I think you know, experimenting with the book as a form is is a fascinating, wonderful thing for people to do. It means it is still an object of desire and an object that people think can be molded into explaining their reality and sharing their story, and that's the power of books. Th- that's why we all do it, right. as a reader or a bookseller. Right. So, Miriam, I don't know that I've ever asked you this question, even though we've probably had thousands, if not tens of thousands of hours of conversations over the last almost 30 years. But what is the book that changed your life? Well, I was one of those 10-year-olds who read a book that changed her life, and it was the Landmark series, and it was the uh, biography of Marie Curie. So I was 10 years old, and this would make it about 1961, and I was looking around at my life and trying to think about what I wanted to be when I grew up. And there was the Landmark biography series, and I was reading about George Washington or Kit Carson or, um, I'm trying to think of somebody else, uh, George Washington Carver, actually. And then I came across and not finding very much of interest for me in in those biographies. And I came across this biography of Marie Curie, and I downed it in like one sitting. And Mm. um, the thing that struck me about the book, because uh, Marie Curie was born in Poland, and um, at about the age of 18, she is accepted at the Sorbonne, and she gets on a train, and she heads to Paris to um, start her life as a university student. And she doesn't know French, and she's never been on a train before. Uh, She's never had a suitcase before. And this girl had the courage to get on that train and head for Paris. And I have absolutely not a bone in my body that is scientific or interested in science. And I certainly um, didn't um, want to go to the Sorbonne particularly. But to me, the courage of that girl to get on that Mm. train and go to Paris was something that I use as a mantra throughout my life. I was would say, I'm looking for the train, I'm looking for my Paris. And it helped me make many difficult decisions in my life. And it was a beacon to me that somebody did that and that that was a path that I could follow as well. And it would be an extremely different train ride, an extremely different destination. But that that power was within my capability was mm. transformative. So, Miriam, that is yet another example of your capacity for exquisite language in describing things. And one of the things that was in, uh, I I don't know whether it was in Shelf Awareness or Publishers Weekly, but you were interviewed um, as a portrait of a bookseller, as the CEO of Powell's. And in response to the question about what makes for a good book in your eyes, I I ripped this out because when I read it, not only um, was I reminded of how much I love um, hearing what you have to say, but as always, you crystallized something perfectly in a sentence. And the sentence uh, was, a good book takes my singular view of the world and turns it into a prism. Elaborate on that a little bit for us. Well, thank you for 
carrying out that quote, it meant a lot to me when I, I was sitting at my desk and, and thinking about what I wanted to say to answer that question. Um, I love words, and to me, words are a way of connecting with people. And the words that I read are, to me, the power of, and I keep on coming back to this word, transformative and empathetic. So when I look at my white body, my female gender, my um, background and my class, my culture, my nationality, I see them as not only integral parts of who I am and absolutely important, but they're my limitations. They are my Mm. limitations. And so for me to truly understand and be empathetic about other people's lives and experiences, I turn to books. I turn to fiction and nonfiction as a way of understanding what is it like to be and uh, this other reality, this other person. And books can take me in time or in space or in through gender, through class, through culture, and give me a small glimpse, a small bit of empathy about somebody else's experience. And I think that this world needs way more empathy. And so I'm in the business that I'm in because I believe it is it is my job as a bookseller to to spread that kind of understanding and empathy. Well, Miriam, is that enough? So you, you're going to have to be on every episode, <laughs> Honey Pie. That's see, this is the problem with this conversation, right? right. It's so delicious and so much fun yep. that we just have to do more of that. I agree. The thing for me is I, I I recommend books, but to me, recommending books is so personal and so. Um, a conversation that's a one-on-one conversation because no one title is going to speak to everyone. That's the beauty of the individual voice in the book and the individual reading the book is we get to link those two up and each yeah. interaction is has its own dynamic and its own personality. And that's what keeps me alive and interested in the bookselling business. Well, thank God for the bookselling business <laughs> that you are part of it. Thank God thank for God. that. For a complete list of all the books in today's episode, including Colin Toybean's House of Names and What's on the Front Table at Pals Books, just go to bookpodcast.com. We want to hear from you. Send us an email at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com. We're trying to get a better demographic handle on the people like yourself who listen to Just the Right Book Podcast. So I'd love to ask you to go to our website, bookpodcast.com, Click on the listener survey, and it should take you about 30 seconds, and it would be really helpful to us. So thank you in advance for taking the time to do this. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Thank you to our sound engineer, Pat Keo and our producer, Christina Torres. And thank you all for listening.